I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's great to have uh, Tim Clark here. This is the book in question. <laughs> I thought we'd kick off by asking him to read something from it. And after that, I'm going to try to gloss what it is he said at greater length. Okay, great. Um, you know, as, as this is a launch, really, it's the first time I've, I've seen people in a room uh, and with the book. I, I'm just very briefly going to say some thank yous. Uh, thank you very, uh, very much to Thames and Hudson for producing a very, a very uh, beautiful book, I think, um, to Roger Thorpe and in particular perhaps to Amber Hussein, who just was uh, unstoppable in her determination to see the thing through. Um, I, I'm sure I'm going to forget things, forget people, but uh, one person I certainly shan't forget is Anne Wagner, who is um, really there in every page of the book, and uh, my, th my thanks to her. And, you know, there, there are other people in the audience, they know who they are, who've really helped, and I appreciate that. Here's just a kind of um, stitch together of a passage from the preface and a passage from the introduction, which uh, Jeremy rightly thought might just sort of set the scene. It took a long time for me to understand that the elements of this book had a subject in common. What the artists whose pictures held me captive offered most deeply, I came to see, was a way of being earthbound, fully and only here in the world. This meant that the artists essentially set aside the question of belief, and unbelief when they dealt with pagan or Christian themes, or looked at the question as one facet of, uh, of an indelible human comedy. And that other worlds, though often vivid in their works, were entirely part of the same human round, built from humble or unregenerate materials. And that therefore, their paintings seemed to offer the possibility of imagining, even making, the world otherwise without positing a future transformation scene where life would be raised to a higher power. This last refusal of the future seemed to me sanitary as the world all around me began another cycle of end-time politics and religious war. And I leap a couple of pages um, and go on to this. My great subjects in what follows are paintings by Giotto, Bruegel, Veronese, and Poussin. Picasso gets a final look in, but readers may wonder why I, of all people, end up writing about things done so long ago. It's because, alas, the long ago seems to me coming back to life all round us. Writing in a time of renewed wars of religion, I find myself thus obliged to reach back to the late medieval and early modern ages. A succeeding enlightenment is no longer for us. The wonderful, easy godlessness of French painting in the 19th and 20th centuries, still my teacher of the beauty and depth that so-called secularization can attain, has little to tell us, sadly, as men in orange jumpsuits plead for their lives on camera. We need the wisdom, which includes the bitterness, of men for whom the massacre of the innocents and the smell of heretics' burnt flesh were commonplace. So, 
I'm going to say a little more about the book, try and divulge the introduction, make it less succinct. I'm going to have to speak from notes on this because I think the book is sufficiently complex for me to be able to lose the thread of what it is I want to say. So excuse me if I'm not addressing you uh, as I might. Um, this book is about transfiguration. It's about what happens when the possibility of another order, a better order, appears in the world. And that world, the world we know, is obstinately resistant to radical makeovers. In Tim's book, these apparitions are cast in religious or humanist terms, sometimes both. Uh, Picasso is more complicated, and I guess we'll come to that. Uh, so is Bruegel the Elder, actually. I mean, the painting that, uh, that you look at and describe as an undivine comedy is really a, it's driven by a fantastic evocation of, of surfeit and the end of toil. But in the case of Giotto, it's a dream that foretells uh, the birth of Christ's mother. In Poussin, it's the betrothal of Joseph and Mary. So one way or another, through vision or sacrament, uh, we're getting towards the promise of a, of a great future, which is to say a kingdom of justice, kindness, forgiveness, order, all that stuff. But the question is, is it a kingdom on earth or where is it? This is the point, I think. Because we long for these transformations, Tim's saying to us, to happen in the here and now, and not in some afterlife. And in all the paintings that you've chosen, transfiguration appears in the world and never in the afterlife. And you carefully avoid using the term afterlife. Instead, you use the expression, the life to come, because the life to come always includes the off chance of a different life here uh, in the world. Mm. As you read them, most of these paintings body forth an incredible possibility of civility, grace, humanity, as we used to call it. And it's also, they're also about the conquest of pain and the sublimation of difficulty. In the allegory of love, the Veronese, and you're going to hear in there around the room, there are actually pictures that you can look at. So as we kind of move along, you just have to grab them and move them around. In, in the allegory of love, there's this question of um, negotiating bog-standard human failings, like contempt duplicity and lust and what happens as, as, you, as you try to, to manage this stuff. We also know that in all these visionary paintings, the promise is only a promise. And the paintings perform a world that's much more generous than the one we live in. It's more exhilarating. But they, they can only do this performance by rooting it in the fabric of ordinary life. And to put it in the fabric of ordinary life is to have that thing sort of blazing with aspiration, I think. But it's all in the material, the physical world that's depicted in the painting. And this is the heart of the matter for you, I think. These are the moments to hang on to. Every heavenly vision you investigate in your book turns out to be grounded in the material. The protagonists of these paintings and some of their side characters, I'm excluding the angels, belong entirely in the world as it is. And if, I, if we keep using this expression, the world as it is, it's important. It's a quotation from Nietzsche, from the will to power. Yeah. 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 So this is what we have. It's now or never. There's no great revelation ahead of us, no radical enlightenment, no overthrow, no coming of the, the new man, if we remember that. Yet all these promises are latent in the paintings you describe. So one thing to notice about the book is it's anti-millenarianism. It's fierce, fiercely, I think, non-utopian sensibility. Um, and the other is its faith in the power of the imagination, um, as we find it in painting. All the same, your tone when you're talking about the real world in which these heavens, in which heaven can sometimes be manifest, is full of a certain dread. I mean, I think we saw it at the, in that closing sentence that you finished the introduction with. And so I think that's the first question. How do we put together the ambition and grandeur of the paintings as mm. you see them? And they're keyed into the world and your misgivings about the world. Yes. Well, that's a wonderful... Uh, I'm uh, sorry to have gone on for so long, but it's the best no, way to unpack it's a, it. It's a wonderful um, reflection on the book. Um, let me try to uh, 
answer it more a, a little generally and then then go to the question of the dread. I think the book has, has two strands, really. First of all, look, it's, it's, it's a celebration of painting. And it, it seizes on a certain number of paintings which do entertain the idea of what the world would be like if it were transformed, raised to some higher power. If, if, if somehow or other the world became paradise. But they're able to kind of entertain that idea in ways which sort of build in all kinds of misgiving, skepticism, comedy. And one of the, you know, the book starts with a very endearing and crazy, slightly crazy passage from Ruskin in which he, Ruskin is looking at Veronese and he says, the more I looked at the Veronese, the more I realized that there was more in this painting than in a thousand poems. <laughs> the entire superiority of painting to literature. Well, of course, that's a sort of, you know, it's, it's Ruskin over the top. But, uh, but I choose it as the, my first epigraph, really, right. because there is a side of me which, it, which uh, deeply sympathizes with it. And, uh, and I'm drawn to these paintings because they seem to me to epitomize painting's ability to sort of entertain an imagining of the world absolutely otherwise. Uh, at last fulfilled and released from confusion and pain and suffering, but also to show us that, look, that's an entirely worldly imagining. It's built on reflection on what, our, what the human and natural condition really is. And I think the kind of world, wordlessness of painting is tremendous advantage there, right? That it, it enables you both to vividly, to envisage. Yeah, uh, you call the, it mute, don't you? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. There's this wonderful uh, uh, letter of Poussin's in which he says, I, 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 I must turn aside to, to deal with mute things. Right. That's that. That's that's. You know, I've stopped the letter, and I'll turn aside. So, part of the argument of the book is that. Well, let me put it this way. Look, we surely have learned from human history, and from sadly the last hundred years, and perhaps the last ten, that imagining that the world is on the on on the verge of some radical transformation that we're in some kind of end time that uh, that that utter ruthlessness and uh, and purposiveness yeah. must be devoted to the making of uh, the world otherwise we've surely learned how deadly and how utterly deceptive and how utterly disastrous, right, that, that, that turn of the human imagination can be. Um, still, I think it's indelible. I think it's indelible. And to do without it, I think, would be, uh, would be to sort of steer to a, a, a dreadful acceptance world. So I do want I do want, I think, you know, anyway, we will always, the human beings will all go, always go on imagining the world otherwise, imagining some proximate wholesale change, some revolution. Mm. What I think these paintings enable us to do is to think of that imagining as imagining, envisaging, <coughs> experimenting thinking about what the world is and how it might be remakeable without that sort of turning into a, a cult or the possession of an avant-garde or the possession of an army mm -hmm. or a sect, right. you know? Yeah. Can we sort of suspend that and hope to get back at the end towards those bigger, those bigger yes. political questions? Yes. And just ask a bit about your, your reading of the paintings, the five... Yeah. The five artists here, yeah. crucially the first four. 
you talk a lot about the inwardness of the paintings. I think the figures in the paintings. Yeah. There's a way in which they turn away from the world into a kind of reflection. And this is very important to you, yeah. this inwardness. But it would be good if you could say a bit more about why that was and what that inwardness is, actually. Yes. I mean, it's actually the first picture, you know, which is on the cover, right? The great uh, Giotto, which is usually called Joachim's Dream. I mean, it's... it's, it, it's um, uh, the title is uh, misleadingly transparent, right? Um, what the text says is that uh, Joachim fell asleep in, in broad daylight and in his sleep was visited by an angel. Whether it's a dream, not a matter, right? But anyway, it's a visitation. It's a, a, a radical discontinuity in which an other world appears to him. Um, but, uh, of course, it appears to him in the form of an image. He's, he is asleep, and Giotto is sort of thinking enormously hard about, uh, about what it is to imagine. Um, at at mm. some point I say that, that you might even say that the place of this picture in, the, uh, in, in European history is that it sort of actually ushers in the idea of the mental image. Uh, matters immensely to me, uh, better in the, on the cover than in the handout, matters immensely to me that this extraordinary depiction of kind of right, protected inwardness is, has a sort of halo and then a kind of anti-halo of black, of dark, of darkness which for somebody like me sort of with 20th century on my mind, you know, I can't Hope, I can't help seeing uh, it as a premonition of Malievich's black square, right? It's the black square already. It's abstraction. Mm. It's emptiness. It's the space of the mind, if you like. Yeah. The space of imagining. So um, I value that. You know, mm. uh, I, I, um, I also think it's... Uh, I also value uh, Bruegel's absolute materialism and sort of outwardness, right? And his sort of comic, comic lack of interest in, in the inward, right? He, he sort of sees bodies as uh, in, entirely yeah. bodies. Can we, can we stay on the inward and actually jump to the Poussin? Yes. Because we see another shape again, don't we? Which, which puts you in mind again, first of the inward and second of the abstract. Yeah. And it's, it's a moment, it, it's called, uh, it was described as the femme colonne. Yeah. It's half a figure, part of which is obscured by a column. And somehow there is, there's a very strong echo as Tim works his way through the, through the paintings of the black square when he reaches his description of, of this column. And I think it's just interesting for him to link these up for us. Yes. Um, it, you know, this is really unre uh, unreproducible. It's a, it's a darn good... Do you all have access It's a to darn good pictures? reproduction in the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like, I like. Sales pitch. Yeah. I mean, have you got these pictures at the back? Because we tried to kind of spread them around. I'll show, I'll show you it in the book. It's a double-page spread, and of course you pay for a double-page spread, you know, <laughs> in terms of, well, yeah, you pay for a double-page spread, uh, but, you know, in terms of through the gutter and everything, which is, which, but, it, look, there she is, uh, and you can just about see her in this rather dingy reproduction on the handout, um, and she is small, she only, she's only a sixteenth of the picture, so, you know, that last that last se segment there is only a sixteenth of the picture width. The clue to its power, and I can tell you that when you see it, it you know it it just it's fixating. The clue to its power is a wonderful story that comes down to us of the great sculptor Bernini in Rome in Paris, and being shown the Poussin series of the sacraments. And he gets to this one, and he pulls back the curtain. To, uh, each of them had an 
individual curtain. He pulls back the curtain and he says, that's, good God, that's what the picture's about. And he sort of looks and looks from minute after minute and uh, can't, can't really explain to Chanteloup uh, why he's transfixed. But it's very rare, of course, as I say in the book, it's rare, actually, that we get evidence of what a very great looker at works of art looks at, right? And find, you know, as opposed to second-rate, dreary um, writers about art, right? You know, um, so, uh, so, so I think I, I, I try to take that femme colonne as seriously as Bernini seems to, to have. And I do see it as somehow or other strangely connected with Joachim yeah. and his black square. And that there, I mean, to cut a long story short, she seems to me a sort of a figure of, it's very important that we, we can't see her. All we see is a pattern of folds. Uh, she's hidden in a veil. We don't even really know which way she's looking. After a while in front of the picture, you sort of begin to entertain the fancy that she might even be not bothering with mm. the with the betrothal in the center, but sort of facing the other way, where the light is coming through this wonderful window. But that's um, significant too, because yes. it's, about the, it's about the sort of material switch of attention away from this tremendous sacrament. I mean, this is part, yes. of, this is part of your story about what these works do and the kind, yes. of, the kind of earthiness that they perform. Yes, Can, I said to you the other day when we were chatting about it, that perhaps for both of us, uh, outsidedness is a value. Well, it certainly is for me, mm. you know. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, and she's the figure of outsidedness. She's, you know, she's the figure that's not quite part of the feast. Yeah. Not quite part of the occasion. Mm. Not, uh, not again it. Not absent from it. Mm. Not in opposition, but sort of the figure of uh, reflection and distance. Attention, but distance, and and I mean that comes back to what what I'm trying to struggle with is I don't think we can do without the idea of heaven on earth. Heaven, uh, heaven, heaven has an existence for us, um, and it's indispensable, you know, indispensable as a way of kind of thinking about what the world is and what it might possibly might might be capable but but only and ever only and ever materialized in these pictures yeah. in in the realm of the everyday and indeed sometimes the ordinary can i move us along to yeah. picasso who's <laughs> one of the anomalies perhaps the, the yes the anomaly in this book i mean one wants to know what he's doing there and, and the picture in question is the fall of icarus which was commissioned yeah. Uh, by UNESCO for its conference building and put in in 1958. On the back here, right? right? Uh, uh, well, it's obvious that it's the only one that's a Picasso. <laughs> 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 yes. Um, yes. Uh, I'd like to know why it's here, because it's clearly more, it's more than the fact that Icarus is falling to earth. It's not merely a, it's not merely a question of, uh, of of heaven on earth, quite the opposite in yeah. some ways. Yeah. So what's going on? Yes. Um, you know, uh, uh, I think authors should uh, be aware of making their books more coherent <laughs> than they really are. And there's, there's a kind of way sure. in which they sort of, uh, you know, well, you know this, that they come together from things that demand your attention and they sort of get under your skin and you can't escape from. And then you perhaps begin to see connections. I, I, I mean, so this is retrospective. Uh, I think that I, I, I do think I do think I know how the Picasso fits. Um, I, Bruegel is sort of central in the book because Bruegel is for me, you know, the great materialist, the great the the great. Uh, inhabitant merely of the world. Mm. It's a wonderful, um, wonderful moment in uh, the uh, 
uh, art historian, the early 20th century art historian, uh, Walter Friedlander, where he says, heaven for Bruegel is an empty place. <laughs> right? um, uh, you know, and I think that there's a lot to that. So, but on the other hand, Bruegel is capable of, in, in the land of cocaine of uh, entertaining the idea of a peasant hereafter, a peasant life to come, the end of suffering, the end of, mm. the end of hunger. But in the Picasso, what, what yes. is it the end of? Yes, <laughs> yes. Okay. I mean, the Bruegel is, is also, yes. we could talk a lot about the Bruegel. Yes. Well, he, he, here's the link for me. Bruegel's, Bruegel paints a great fall of Icarus. There's, 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 a, there's a, a, a certain doubt about the picture we have in Brussels, whether it's actually entirely Bruegel. Well, it's certainly Bruegel's idea. And in my view, there's an awful lot of it that must be Bruegel. And it's a fall of Icarus. It's an, it, it's an anti-heaven on earth. It, it's saying uh, you aspire to ascend uh, and you, you fall. And your fall makes no difference to the world. The world goes on. I, I, think, uh, I think the Picasso is sort of taking up that idea mm -hmm. very profoundly. And, and wondering what to do with it in the kind of extraordinary circumstances of the 1950s. This is 1958. Um, and, you know, uh, Picasso is indelibly the painter of Guernica, the painter of kind of the epic struggle for the v victory over fascism. And, and so, it, to me, it's extraordinarily important that when he's given this UNESCO commission, right, right at the center of kind of what, what, what so many people were hoping would be a new culture, a new post-war world culture, he, he, he produces a version of the fall of Icarus and, and in a kind of crazy, weird, mm. nerveless, absurd strip cartoon style it, it's not as simple as it's not as simple as it being uh, you know a sort of just a simple besmirching of the idea of aspiration so sure. um a, but it's a very peculiar you aspire at your yeah. peril you aspire to certain kinds of uh, uh, heaven on earth at your peril yes perhaps. yes uh, uh, but also um I mean, I, I think the picture is withering about the world left behind by the failed aspiration. Mm. You know, these fatuous Côte d'Azur bathers, sort of um, parodies of Matisse, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it's, uh, we have, a, it's in the book, an astonishing mm. picture of the opening ceremony for the, uh, f for the work down in Valaris. Uh, with Maurice Therese, you know, the ruthless Stalinist uh, boss of the PCF. Of course, you know, Picasso is, a, is the most prestigious party member at that point. And the two, the two of them in front of it with Cocteau, who, whose dubious collaborative uh, excursus during the Second World War bears a lot of thought. But the, the trio of them in the, in the yeah. front of this, uh, the ironies of all this. And Therese... Torres tries to, uh, in his diary, says, oh, yes, well, it's a very fine work. It's, the, it's, the, it's war going down to darkness uh, and the victory of peace. Yeah, well, if you believe that, you, you know. You and, of course, UNESCO thinks that or pretends to think that, too. So I, I guess that's why the Picasso is there, he, because he sort of sets us this question of... What do we do with, um, with, with the image of radical transformation and its failure? How do we stage it anymore? Do we absolutely leave it behind? I mean, I, I quote it towards the beginning, uh, the philosopher, Leszek Kolakowski, you know, the end of his uh, three-volume history of Marxism, with a kind of lacerating and embittered and sardonic 
dismissal of uh, Marxism as the pseudo-religion of our time, right? You know, promising heaven on earth. Um, and, and so, I mean, Kolokowski and many others like him, probably, probably, you know, most of those in Paris say that we should leave all this utterly behind. It's fatuous and worse than fatuous, right? Because it leads to, uh, it leads to, well, we know what it leads to or has led to. So this is really very much a book about, which, which I, I say in the end, you know, I say harsh things about the Kolokowski, but I sort of say, well, in the end, you know, unfortunately, uh, the nub of the charge is very hard to answer. You know, yeah, yeah. And, and I think I've begun to get it about the trajectory of the book, actually. It moves towards a sort of pessimism um, or realism that, that is staked out at the beginning as you work through the other painters. Yes. Um, and this is where we're going. And, and I hope we, we've got time to get to the end of the book in, in the time that's left. One thing that interests me is that you say that, that painting is rather better equipped than writing to, to deal with this question of, of the life to come as it's manifest on earth. And actually, I was thinking about that. And we were talking about that over the weekend, briefly. And it seemed to me that, in a sense, the poets had had quite a good crack at it. <laughs> yes. However, they displaced it away from, from the earth. I mean, you have Dante, you have Milton, after all. Yes. And whatever you think of them, you have the cantos, which was some yeah. some attempt to, to put together a structured kind of paradise on earth. So tell us a bit about why you feel that yeah. the writers can't do it. I don't really think that the writers can't do it. Yeah, you know, and obviously the Dante chapter is, you know, entirely shadowed by... Uh, sorry, the, uh, the jo oh, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, enough said. Uh, <laughs> um, but he's there, you know, and I sort of... Enter I, I say at one point, I'm, I'm absolutely with the 19th century idolaters of Giotto in imagining that Dante himself came into the chapel at various points and that they talked it through. Right. So, and, and you know, uh, certainly some of the most uh, memorable moments of my life have been spent reading the Divine Comedy. Um, and, you know, it's not for nothing that when uh, the bunch of us tried to write a, a book about... Um, the dreadful moments of 2003-04, you know, the run-up to Iraq and all that. Uh, we called the book Afflicted Powers, and the epigraph was from uh, the first book of Paradise Lost. But here's the deal. <laughs> um, I, uh, Dante, when he gets to heaven, actually says, mm, can't describe this. Mm. Language doesn't have colors for folds like these. Beautiful metaphor taken from painting. And, and after all, the same goes for Paradise Lost, which I revere, of course. You know, I mean, everyone except C.S. Lewis thinks that uh, uh, Milton's God is an aesthetic and ethical monstrosity, right? An utter failure. And, and what really counts in uh, Paradise, Paradise Lost is Satan. And Eve, right? They're the heroes because they are the strugglers, you know, the, yeah. the earthbound, yeah. right? The, the voice of the confusion yeah. and resentment mm. and aspiration mm. of human beings. And in that sense, yeah. the, the poem actually plays to your, to your hand, as it, as it were, in the book. I mean, sort it is about yes. struggles on earth and struggles, struggles between the, the, the sort of fallen divine and the... And, they're not quite perfect human. Yes, that's right. But they're all, they're all flickering with these possibilities as the, as, as the struggles played out. Yes. Can I just say one mm. thing, you know, perhaps before we, you know, th throw it open. I mean, just uh, one of the good things about this is that it enabled me to kind of read and read again things you've written. And here's a way of getting into focus, what I'm trying to say is that we cannot do without the idea of heaven on earth, the idea of uh, a life to come, 
the idea of transformation. We cannot do without the religious dimension, right, to our kind of thinking of the world. However much we kind of distrust it and it chills us, right, with mm. its certainties. And that may be, I came across a kind of uh, moment in your tremendous and harrowing book about modern migration and, you know, the efforts of the rich world to keep the poor out, the poor world out. Right towards the end, this dreadful moment when uh, we don't even know where she came from in sub-Saharan Africa, right? Yeah. Uh, we don't know her name, we don't know the country, even the country. Uh, but she got as far as the, the fence, Spanish Morocco. Uh, and she got she through. Said. She got through, and then she was and picked and got through the razor wire. But then she was picked up, and she was was put in put in stir, and she committed suicide during the night, seven months pregnant. It's just about the nadir of you know uh, yeah. of, of our history. Here's what here's what happened. Well, here's just part of what happened. Um, for a day or two, her death was all over the Spanish press. Uh, it also stirred up a passionate sense of solidarity in Calamacaro. Williams Osunde was so dis that's a, that, another. Uh, I remember another, another migrant who'd got across the wire. Yeah, yeah. Was so distressed by the news that he insisted on attending the funeral, though he had never met the woman. At the graveside, he read from Ephesians. For we wrestle not against the flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Yeah. Well, we can, very good read. It, you know, it. We can't do without that. I call it a rhetoric because I, without you know, uh, with meaning the word entirely positively with that kind of register of outrage at the hell on earth and the belief that's implicit there that we can struggle against principalities and powers and the forces of darkness and the struggle is, is worth it. I mean, so that's really what this book is about. The final piece in, in the book, which Tim calls a coda, is an essay which was first published in New Left Review, which is reproduced here. And actually, I'd quite like to, we've had, I've had to skip a lot because there are many other things I wanted to talk about, but um, time's catching up with this. There's a little passage which I'd like to read as follows. You may ask, finally, what is the difference between the kind of anti-utopian politics I'm advocating and reformism, pure and simple. The label doesn't scare me. The trouble with the great reformists within the internationals was that they shared with the revolutionaries a belief in the essentially progressive, purgative, reconstructive destiny of the forces of production. Therefore, they thought reform was a modest proposal, a pragmatic one. They were wrong. Reform, it transpires, is a revolutionary demand. And I think it's this coda of yours that spins the book entirely towards a, a certain kind of politics, a certain kind of recognition of time past, <coughs> certain types of approach to struggle now suspended. And I wonder why you chose to put it in. <laughs> yes. Huh. Adjourned, I should say, rather. Yes, yes. I chose to put it in, you know, because whether I like it or not, I, I go on being, you know, a political animal. And my attention to visual imagery is always fired by some sense that the visual images have something to, something to tell me, some help to give me, right, you know, in kind of rethinking. Uh, political possibility. That's been true uh, from start to finish. 
it 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 happened. I don't, I don't exactly know how, looking back how and why, mm. but it it happened that this specifically political set of you know reflections, aphorisms, provocations, whatever you like to call it, you know, sort of happened just as the book, the the book on painting was sort of coming together. And I do think they, you know, they're deeply linked. I mean, Bruegel is the hero of both, actually. You know, Bruegel, for me, still offers us a kind of a, a way of thinking about the human comedy, mm. which um, entertains possibilities and, you know, the possibility of things becoming truly otherwise. Uh, but sort of haunted through and through with the, you know, the uh, a sense of the dangers and absurdities of the, of the uh, of the project. Yeah. So I, I, I guess it's that's why it's there. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And and before we throw it open, there's one question which I, I just got, which I thought I should have to skip, but I can't skip it. Which, which is that um, you talk about yourself being captive to the work of certain painters. Yeah. Captive to these images, actually. And one of the fascinating things about that for me is that if we go back across your career as a thinker and a writer, we come eventually to the point at which you belong to the, to the English section of the Situationist International. Mm. And the kind of thinking or approach I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to caricature this, but but part of the thinking, crucially, of of your comrades in that movement, was very much about the problem of representation and avoiding, precisely avoiding capture. I mean, capture was the very thing mm. that mm. that certain forms of rep representations, as they were deployed by society, was intended to do. It was to it was to keep us in a kind of yeah. <coughs> Keep us in submission. Submission, yes, to keep us wrapped, I think, yeah. in, in yes. something, in a, a form of bad attention. Now, I don't, I'm not saying there's a contradiction between these two positions. In fact, I doubt whether there is, but I, I'm just wondering how it happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you came from, from this, this place to an entirely different, well, to a somewhat different place. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, I mean, I, 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 I don't think you can... Understand De Boer's hostility to representation, uh, unless you uh, unless you remember that always behind it lies uh, the claim of the French Communist Party to represent <laughs> represent the working class, the right? Well, not just the French Communist Party, but the whole history of you know a certain kind of le left vision of politics. Which, which, which had that as its fundamental, you know, Leninism yeah. and so on. Uh, and uh, Du Bois, you know, fiercely, fiercely, whatever else the situations were going to do, they were not going to represent uh, a, a, any, you know, any wider interest in society, right? They were, uh, they were, they were specific and they were going to try and, you know, Make revolution and make connections with, uh, but they weren't going to, they weren't going to, be a party that stood for X. So that's one aspect. That's of the one aspect of it. Yes, uh, the other aspect is the idea of a world of representations in which representations are at a distance from you. Right? They're they're out there and they're uh, unreachable uh, they're they're purely visual right I mean that's sort of yeah. you know that's why the word spectacle was mm. was chosen for for the for, for a very sort of yes. complex kind in of, fact I was wondering yeah. whether we could get through this without using it well but it's true yes. that we can't no we can't quite I think that what uh, you know what De Boer uh, envisaged He's sometimes accused of sort of wanting a kind of Rousseau-esque politics of total transparency. Well, no, I don't think that's true at all. What he what what he envisages or dreamt of was a was was a social order in which representations were 
manipulable. We're uh, transformable. Negotiable. Right? Negotiable, reachable, yeah. recallable. Yeah. You'd love the idea of recalling Blairite MPs, by the way. Yeah. Um, uh, and that they, you know, they weren't, they weren't out there as the, as the property of a party or the, uh, the production of a machine of representation owned by the powers that be. I don't, you know, so, so in that sense, uh, I don't think he's anti-representational, and I certainly am not, although I think, you know, all the time. Um, I mean, it, maybe that's a way of thinking about the appeal of these pictures to me, is that they are uh, entirely transformable. You mean because of the work that you or I or anybody can perform on them by yes, thinking about them? Yes, and they're them. also, they're, they're so material, mm -hmm. they're so proximate, they're so immediately there as, you know, human-made things. That's what I love about painting, of course, and that what I despise about the, you know, the, the, the machinery of, uh, uh, of the virtual life. Uh, that it's, you know, that it's radically right. disembodied. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas yep. I, the embodied nature of these dreamings of the world otherwise yep. is, is precious to me. It would be nice to, to have some interventions, questions, open up the conversation at this point. Th thanks very much for that. I, I just wanted to ask about your title, Heaven on Earth. Because it, it seems to me that actually the, the paintings that you've chosen don't represent that, really, mm. um, it, both in, in Greek myth and in Christian theodicy. The whole point is that heaven does not come down to earth. Yeah. Um, you know, if you look at, um, at Icarus, he, he, he has his wings, yeah. he approaches the sun, but he never gets to the sun. He plunges back into yeah. the dimension of the, of the terrestrial. And the thing about the uh, about both the the, the Giotto and the Poussin is essentially they're about the incarnation, and the literal meaning of the incarnation is that the heavenly, the eternal, the celestial has become flesh. And so, in both those paintings, we're looking forward to the fact that actually, you know, even Christ will ask, "Where is God?" Yeah. And so, in a sense, isn't aren't these paintings? They're not about heaven being on earth they're about the impossibility of of heaven being on earth yeah i think yes i think that's probably right um <laughs> uh, and i remember actually the first the, the the first title i toyed with was heaven and earth and uh and casual silverman said to me well for goodness sake you know, at least make it heaven on earth. What she, what she, what what she meant by that, which I went along with, um, uh, what she wanted was at least to say that the stress had to be on the earthliness of the heavenly, right? The, the, in other words, this is a book about the imagining of the of a world transformed, but it's but the stress indeed is on the fact that always. Um, the imagining comes back down to earth, right? And that we, we can't have heaven on earth. Yes, I think that's, that is ultimately the argument of the book. I mean, uh, there's a quote from Blake which crops up several times in the book, right? A famous quote from Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Uh, Eternity is in love with the productions yeah. of time. Eternity is in love with the production of time. So that's, you know, that's, that's sort of part of the argument. Uh, as a translator of Rambo, you'll, uh, I hope, uh, approve that, you know, always in my mind, although it didn't really get there in the book, was the, the other side of that dialectic is this wonderful um, phrase in uh, Rambo, uh, la vraie vie est ailleurs. Yeah. Right. Real, real life is somewhere else. So, and it's it's the tension between those two. Right. Eternity is in love with the production of time, and yet, 
we, we, and yet real life is elsewhere, is somewhere else. So we have to kind of press towards that elsewhereness, that unknownness. And it's the tension between those two, I think, that the book's about. Yeah, heaven, won't, heaven doesn't appear. It's really what I was trying to say about Paradise Lost, you know, yeah. I'm interested in your choice um, of works for comparison in that I think, are they all white European male painters? Is there space here for feminist post-colonial sort of queer interpretations of, of heaven on earth through the choices that you've made? I, I th yes, I think there is. You know, look, look the, it, it's partly because I think that if you truly pose this question about um, the question I tried to sort of outline in the first uh, passage I read to you um, about the kind of necessity but also dangers of apocalyptic end time politics, right? Then I think you're, you know, I found myself sort of compelled to go back to the early modern age in which, of course, I mean, for reasons which are sufficiently obvious, right, you know, uh, male painters are in a position of, you know, uh, almost absolute dominance. Um, but of course, you know, the closer we get to the present, uh, the more that situation changes. The other side of things is that the Veronese chapter, for instance, uh, the the Poussin chapter really sort of turn on figures of women. They're male imaginings of women, but they are women. Women are the heroes of this idea of a sort of life transformed, a life assessed and reassessed and manipulated uh, and, and turned on its head. So, uh, you know, yet again, I mean, this is a point I'm sure that's perfectly familiar to you, that you don't necessarily have to go to artists of a certain gender to find works in which the question of gender is, is, is investigated, you know, radically, right, and uh, to its roots. There's quite a lot of readings that you can do of these paintings. I found this as I was going along which are rather, I mean, they're more than male. I mean, if you look at the femme colonne, that half, that half concealed figure uh, in the Poussin, one of the things that we come across in the, in the book is a query about the gender of that figure. You do query it. Yeah. And there are an awful lot of things, if you, if you read the chapter and you're deliberating on this veiled figure, you, you, you can't help but, but think about certain kinds of attitude in the West to what it, to, to what it means for somebody else to be, to be obscured, to choose to cover all these key questions which have sort of dogged and messed up a lot of discourse, for example, in France. Yeah. So, that, so yeah. that there's a lot of fluent stuff going on in these paintings about what's happening now Yes. Once you put your mind to it, well, uh, I, th I think. Mm. Yeah. You know this. You have a look at that picture in the bottom right of the first page, which is sometimes called "Scorn," a ridiculous title. Actually, it's probably the best title is "Disingano," which you know, a complex baroque concept meaning sort. I suppose the best we can do is disillusion. The book ends really uh, with with the woman there. And uh, <laughs> I, I invite you to reflect on her attitude to the fall of man. Uh, right? You know, it, it's, it's a wonderful, complex attitude and an attitude indeed of disillusionment, but of, sort of you know, of fully kind of owning and uh, owning one's disillusion. So, yeah, yeah. plenty there. Well, I'd just like to say a little bit more about your characterization of the material or materialist imagination. Yeah. Because it does occur to me, actually, look, particularly looking at the um, 
brewing all the Icarus one. You just, I mean, just as imagine those ships were actually filled with uh, refugees or migrants from Africa yeah. uh, who've got a very material imagination of a, of a other possible world in Europe. Um, and um, the peasant who's really just wants to carry on tilling his field yeah. and has a very material sense of his own presence, yeah. but may not take too kindly to, you know, I mean, you can't see much about Icarus, but I mean, he's, he's ignoring that. So I just wonder you could just say that about the double-edged nature of the material imagination. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the, I, I think that Bruegel is, uh, look, one of the wonderful things about pictures is that they are not propositions. Right? They, they, they don't unpack into a statement about Icarus. Um, I think they take a view of Icarus, they take a view of the myth, but I think that that part of their fascination for me is exactly that um, uh, one has as a kind of writer or talker or, you know, a human being, unfortunately, inside the language world, you know, you have to go on circling and circling around this object, which sort of opens itself to many possible propositions about it. But on the whole, I'm with you, Phil, that uh, it seems as though Icarus is an incident and that that might call into question the whole idea of uh, the aspirer, the overreacher, uh, the heavenly. Um, and certainly uh, that, that Everything is, every, everything is given to that, the pace of that extraordinary plow on the earth and the folding of that earth under the light of the sun. Far in the background, you can just see him as a little white spot on the left in the darkness there. Uh, that's the head of an old man um, lying on the last furrow uh, just before the hedge. And the, the, the Flemish proverb, uh, apparently, is the, the plow goes over corpses. Um, uh, uh, so is that pessimism? Uh, it, it seems to say, look, the, the real world is, is, is in some sense sort of cyclical and endless and, you know, uh, uh, the earth is full of the corpses of those who've tilled it and that that's the reality somehow. So, so, but, but again, I don't want to rush into that interpretation because, you know, light floods this, this picture. Uh, it's not a picture of, uh, you know, some kind of lumpish, immovable, sticky, earthly, solidity, you know, they're, they're, right? It's, uh, it, it's about the pace of the world, but, and, and it's about the world, uh, an attempt at interrupting that pace, but I don't, th I don't, I don't feel it as sort of saying, mm. well, don't even try, you know, uh, because maybe the sun, being the sun, will sort of always call up the Icarus aspiration. Something like that, Phil, is that okay? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Tim, I just want two things really, if there's time, but there might not be enough time, so it's perhaps just the first uh, point, is you stake a very, very large bet on a claim to the wordlessness of these pictures or painting in general, yeah. uh, beyond the obviously literal sense of the wordless, nat wordless yeah. nature of pictures, something altogether more compelling. Uh, if that is to be a key claim of the whole project, why did you write the book? Yeah, 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 yeah. And that can come across as a cheap shot no, no, sort no, of no, question, no, no. but of course it's not, that's not the spirit in which the question is intended. Yeah. No, I know that. I know that. Shall, we, shall I have a go at that sure. first? <laughs> yeah, well, of course. I mean, look, we're language animals. I mean, uh, and I have no... Uh, no illusions about that, right? You know, I, I, I lived my childhood with a, 
uh, with you know with a, a man in the house sitting at the desk every evening, kind of you know writing. And uh, for my sister and I, you know, writing was was it, right? Uh, somehow or other, right? Inescapably, uh, we're language animals. Um, uh, nonetheless, you know, I, I, I believe we're. I, I believe we can be language animals that are fascinated by the human investment in the non-linguistic understanding of the world. Uh, I, I, you know, I, um, it, it just goes on fascinating me that uh, if you sort of take the Chomskyan view that uh, there seems to be that language as a faculty sort of crystallizes at a moment we can now more and more kind of tie down in time. But it seems to crystallize at just the same moment. Uh, of course, there had been, uh, you know, uh, visual decoration of the body and probably visual image making of various kinds beforehand. But, the, but there was a tremendous acceleration and crystallization of the possibility of depiction at the very same moment. So the sort of language and Altamira and uh, Peshmerl, you know, they sort of, they, they kind of coexist. And it's that coexistence which is interesting to me. Uh, and so, you know, my question always is, hmm, what kind of understanding of the world does depiction open for us? and keep alive for us that language does not. And that leads to, this is a big question, which I'll just, but I'll just throw it out. You know, it, it leads, I think, to us going on thinking about, well, if we have to talk about pictures, and of course we do, we want to, we ought to, how? What kind of language use could there be that uh, respects the difference, right, you know, and is fascinated by the difference. And, and I, I sort of sometimes toy with the idea, though it's a dangerous one, that, that um, maybe we could have a kind of description of painting or sculpture <coughs> that was sort of more, more like the performance of a piece of music, right? not an attempt to sort of put a piece of language in place of the picture. I, 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 when I hear the word ekphrasis, I reach for my gun, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, because I want a, I want a use of, uh, of language which is continually, it's not independent, it doesn't replace the work it's talking about. It's a performance of it, which is always throwing you back to mm. the thing itself and, and, and ask, asking, hmm, is this performance exaggerated? Does it get it right? Is it, is it trying to stress this or that aspect too much? But, uh, but let's, let's go on writing and talking, by all means. The reception of the book. Mm. Um, I think you said beautifully at the, in the preface to Anselm's Intellectual History of Guy Debord that that book, that its time of instrumentality, its time as a weapon, might lie little in the future. Yeah. Uh, with, with respect to Sight of Death and its reception, what do you think are the chances of this really doing something soon, heaven on earth? Yeah. Uh, you know, it was interesting that Jeremy and I had a conversation the other day just about this, about uh, what does one hope for uh, from books in terms of effects, mm. which is, you know, very much on, I think it's on all authors' minds. Everybody's mind. Or yeah. Everybody's mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and the honest answer is, I don't know. I think that this, uh, I hope that this book might uh, might become, I, I hope above, above all actually, that this book might become a small part of this strange moment we're in, in which, uh, in, in which 
the kind of traditions of opposition to the powers that be, and particularly late capitalist society and consumer society, is in question. Right? We sort of find ourselves in this ominous moment uh, in which there is an opposition to capitalist modernity. It just happens to be, you know, uh, 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 in Europe um, and elsewhere, dreadful forms of um, uh, other hating nationalism. And in the wider world, you know, various forms of uh, determined apocalyptic fundamentalism. Um, and I, I, we're surely all of us in a situation where we're wondering, so what on earth do we have to offer uh, in in opposition to those right uh, to those current modes. rampant <clears throat> modes of uh, of opposition to the the state of the world as it is. Uh, so <clears throat> so the books a very small contribution to the idea that well is it possible to think of the world transformed and revolutionized without collapsing back yet again into, you know, uh, various uh, far too well-known scripts, ruthless scripts. Thank you, Thank you very much indeed. Okay. Uh, yeah. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. <laughs>